The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. We know that you want to live an inspired and fulfilling life. Maybe there are a few things that you need to get you there. Welcome to What Matters with your host, Mary Beth Lodge. In today's world of distractions, we can get overwhelmed with day-to-day responsibilities that keep us busy, frustrated, and confused. With an emphasis on the power of the mind and drawing on the fields of personal health, education, neuroscience, business, and spirituality, we'll discuss practical strategies to help you stay focused on your priorities, choices, and results. Now, here is Mary Beth Lodge. Good morning. How are you today? Thank you for joining me today on What Matters. Today, I'm going to ask you to make a difference in your life. Can you do that? Can you find a way to make a positive difference in your world today? Can you make a change within yourself? A change that carries ripples of positive change into the lives of those around you and well beyond. You know that no matter what change you make, it reverberates through the lives of the people around you. You know that, don't you? So no matter how small the change you make, no matter how little the shift in your vibration, it makes a difference. So today, this morning, for this hour, spend this time paying attention. You've created this world that you live in. So how can you change the things that you want to change? How do you apply this to you? Not your significant other, your best friend, your child, your parent, or your coworker. Just you. You can share information with other people, but ultimately, you are the only person that you can really change. You are the person that you are responsible for, and you are the person that can truly make a difference. No, not by telling other people what to do, but by taking action. Action in the world that you live in and the world inside of you. By creating and attracting positive light within yourself, you attract positive light outside of yourself. And yes, I know you're busy. We're all busy. We lead very busy lives. I know I specialize in busy too. But I know that when I'm really busy, I'm distracted. I don't know what my goals are. And maybe that happens to you. Because when we get distractions, when we focus on the little things that really don't matter, we get farther and farther and farther away from the goals that we want to achieve. We start taking for granted the people in our lives and the actions that really count, that are most important. So where are you spending your energy? Are you spending your energy on things that don't really matter? Or are you really paying attention to the people that are the most important in your life? Are you paying attention to the actions and the choices that you make? Are you conscious in the choices that you make? 
So are you consciously choosing how you spend your time? And are you aware of what impact that choice has on the lives of the people that you meet? You see, you touch everyone in some way that you encounter throughout the day, whether it's passing them in the street or having a lengthy, deep conversation with them. You touch other people's lives. So here's my question. Do you create sunshine when you touch other people's lives? No matter where you are, are you creating sunshine? So the way we begin to create sunshine, of course, is to step into gratitude. Make your own sunshine. What are you grateful for today? So I'm asking you, look around your world right now. What are you grateful for? This morning in my part of the world, it is a cool morning. We had rain before dawn. And so as I took my walk, the raindrops were still sparkling on the leaves of the trees. Sometimes I got wet as I walked under a tree. It was so beautiful. And it's cool this morning. It's a nice, fresh morning. And the contrast of the light as the sun peeks out from behind the dark blue-gray clouds. Such a beautiful light show. Yesterday on my walk, I went a direction that I don't ordinarily take. And I noticed along the side of the road... There is some water there, and the bank has been planted with wonderful wildflowers that attract beautiful birds and insects, and they were all in bloom. So the milkweed was blooming, and the crown vetch was blooming. It was so beautiful. And, of course, I'm always grateful for laughter. From the comedy of my cats at play this week, now, I was trying to fill some little tiny bags of, with catnip for them to play with, and instead what I ended up doing was spilling about a half of container of catnip all over the carpeting. It was a free-for-all. The cats had a great party. I didn't have the heart to vacuum up the catnip while they were still rolling and playing in it. It was great entertainment. And from that to just the simple joyful enjoyment of my friends, I'm grateful for so much today. What are you grateful for? You see, this morning, I want to talk about health. We've had some guests on that have talked about kind of the alternative approaches to health. But I'm aware that you may be hearing and reading a lot of the traditional research coming out in the media about certain foods and certain diets and things that we should do or not do. And I noticed that there was quite a bit of um, there was quite a bit of confusion in how the media presented certain research. And I thought I would go over that today. You know, starting with the fact that the AMA this week at their annual meeting declared obesity as a disease. Now, this is a very, very interesting um, statement on their part. And there was quite a bit of disagreement. I don't know if you're aware of that. There was a lot of disagreement among the medical community themselves as to whether they should do this or not. Now, ultimately, they voted 
to declare obesity as an actual disease. It has specific uh, progression. It has specific results, illnesses that um, result from it. It has very specific treatments. And that that helped them to decide that they needed to declare it a disease. Again, there was a lot of disagreement. There were many, many people who... Uh, physicians who did not agree with that, and and they had good reason too. So I want to talk about that for a moment. You know, ultimately, a statement by the AMA carries no legal weight. It has no in and of itself. It it doesn't require anything, but it is often used to develop policy. It's used as kind of a reference when legal things are being developed, when laws are being enacted, um, when decisions are made about funding. All of those things look at statements by the AMA. So when the AMA made that decision to make, make the statement of obesity is a disease, one of the things they were doing was paving the way for reducing the stigma of obesity. You know, we have many, many myths about why people are obese. Um, and some of them have to do with lifestyle and personal behavior. And some of them have to do with other things, physical changes, physical limitations. And so when we look at someone, we might think, oh, they're just lazy. They don't care. Those are stigmas that prevent people who are obese from actually receiving an effective form of treatment. You see, regardless of how someone got there, they do have the right to receive treatment. And that was one of the reasons that the AMA developed their statement was to make a statement that says there are specific treatments and some of those treatments are behavioral. But a person who is obese has the right to receive those treatments without discrimination. And there's been, perhaps you're aware of this or not, there's been a lot of research done recently um, in the medical community about the difficulty that someone who is obese has in obtaining even basic care. Because there are many policies that are set up that are hurtful or uh, demeaning to someone who is obese. And so this statement by the AMA is a step in the right direction to say we are obligated to help someone with obesity because we have stated that it is a disease. And so the discrimination has to go away. I believe it was also a statement that will allow for future funding that will make it easier for people to obtain treatments up to and including surgeries because some people do well on surgeries for obesity. It certainly is not something I advocate and it's not something that I um, would direct someone to immediately. But some people do very well in that and they have the right to choose that treatment. The problem has been that often it is great, mm, great pain to obtain that treatment. Um, way too many 
forms and hoops and documentation. And sometimes it has to be kind of end stage. There has to be so much physical health challenge that the person is no longer a good candidate for surgery. That's unfair. Um, I mean, I've seen clients who it's taken a year or more just to get approval. That's a long time uh, when someone has decided to make a change. That's a long time to work through the process of simply obtaining the funding. So I believe that that was behind the statement as well, is that as declaring it as a disease, it kind of pushes or challenges the um, the funding communities to look differently at um, the funding, how funds are approved or allocated, um, and ultimately to allow and approve the treatments that include, again, both behavioral, um, pharmaceutical, and surgical. Now, what was the what was the challenge? Well, the challenge was that it's um, too loosely defined, that there wasn't enough to really classify it as a disease. And specifically, the people who opposed that decision simply said, you know, smoking is not a disease. Smoking is a behavior that leads to disease. And we recognize that smoking needs treatment. But we don't classify the act of smoking as a disease. And so they were comparing it in that way, that obesity is much in the same vein, that it obesity is not the illness. Obesity is the source of other illnesses. It causes hypertension and heart disease um, and type 2 diabetes. That, that those things do result from obesity. And given the percentage of individuals in our country who are obese, it's 35%. We are declaring that 35% of our population now has the illness of obesity, which they're not really sick. Some of them have other illnesses, but there are many people who, while they are obese, are really very healthy um, and amazingly strong. I, You know, I've always been kind of in awe of how strong someone is um, who is obese because that extra weight really puts a lot of pressure on the the body structure and they're active and flexible and can do whatever they want to do. And so, again, the, the opposition to this discussion, and they said it wasn't a, dis, uh, a disagreement of philosophy. Everybody was in agreement that it needs treatment, we need to enact something that allows for treatment, and that we have an obligation to do so. They, everybody said that. That was not the issue. The issue was around the semantics. How do we talk about it? What do we call it? Ultimately, of course, the decision was made that um, to make the statement that obesity is an illness. And in doing so, there is both the positive of that, which is let's remove the stigma, let's pursue effective treatments, um, let's address these concerns up front in prevention 
let's do all the things we do for every other disease that's out there. And again, the people who were opposed, the people who questioned that statement are saying, what if that leads to people taking even less responsibility for their health? What if by doing this, people step back and say, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm waiting for a pill. I'm waiting for another medication. I'm waiting for surgery because I have this disease of obesity. And that is the potential negative effect of this statement. If we continue to ourselves take ownership and responsibility for our own health, then that won't happen, will it? When we look at ourselves and we look at what is our weight, our health, the things we choose to do for our own health and how healthy do I choose to be, when we take responsibility, then that can happen. You see, in my philosophy, and perhaps you know this already, in my philosophy, I hire a physician as a consultant, not to direct what I do, but to provide me with the options so that I can choose what's best for me, what fits me the best, what feels right, what I'm willing to do, and what I'm not willing to do. That's why I hire a physician. Now, I understand not everyone follows that kind of a philosophy, and I understand that. Because that really does put a lot of pressure on you, doesn't it? To research, to make decisions, to look at the future that maybe you can't even predict. But when you take ownership of your health, you're the one in charge of that. You're the one that decides what behavioral approaches will I take? What medical approaches will I take? What will I do that's different today than it was yesterday for my own health. So as we go forward, I, you know, I want to talk about some of the things that um, have come up in the research, some of the things that, um, that we can look at as things not to do, and what are they really telling us? You know, perhaps you saw there's a brief little story um, on one of the the news things online that talked about a 31-year-old woman who lives in Monaco in southern France. Um, And she admitted, she's 31, she admitted that since the age of 15, she has not had any water to drink. She has only had cola So a carbonated beverage of cola, and she drank approximately a two-liter bottle every day since she was 15. And the resultant health challenge for her is she now has a very significant arrhythmia. Um, Her potassium levels, and potassium was one of the required electrolytes for heart function and for muscle function, was extremely low, dangerously low. Um, and you know, that whole aspect of she only drank soda, her heart is now damaged. Um, and her heart, uh, you know, she almost died because her, her heart rate, her heartbeat was so erratic. 
um, that it was functioning ineffectively, and she actually fainted several times. And it's specifically the cola, the caffeine in the cola, the um, the the cola itself, the carbonation, all of that diminished the potassium in her body, and you have to have potassium. So this is a choice. Do you understand? This was a personal choice that she made to only drink cola, no water. And, you know, we couldn't have conducted a study that showed this as clearly of what the long-term effect of drinking just cola would do. She did it for us. The unfortunate part is this is not the only um, this is not the only example. Um, there are probably 12 documented cases in the research uh, that show this same kind of thing, that this one particular type of erratic heartbeat resulted from drinking carbonated cola beverages and uh, the resultant low potassium. So you might find that interesting and you might make a different choice today as a result of that. All right, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about some of the research that's shown up in the last couple of weeks in relation to health and diet. You're listening to the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you ready to make a change in your life? Would you like to discover the hidden obstacles to your success? Mary Beth Lodge is a certified life coach with a proven track record of guiding others to success. Drawing on mind-body techniques and concepts of neuroscience, Mary Beth will design a program specific to your goals, lifestyle, and personality. You'll develop a specific action plan to follow. You'll learn practical and easy strategies to move through your obstacles and reach your goals. You decide the area to focus on. Is it your weight, your health, or your professional goals? Mary Beth Lodge is a life coach, hypnotist, and health consultant. She specializes in working with people who are confused, frustrated, or discouraged by the direction of their life. She works with people who really want to make a difference in this world and are willing to take the actions to achieve their goals. She'll help you get clear on where you want to be and to follow through on the actions that lead to a healthier and more successful life. Visit LastingLifestyleChange.com to request more information or a free consultation. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to What Matters with Mary Beth Lodge. To be a part of our discussion on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to marybethlodge at gmail.com. Now, back to What Matters. Good morning. Thank you for joining me this morning on What Matters. So our conversation this morning has to do with some of the medical research that's come out recently in terms of health and diet. And the first segment we talked about how the AMA has just declared obesity as a disease and all the implications that kind of fall from that. 
Well, I want to step a little bit further we, and let's talk about some of the things around foods that have come out in the research. And perhaps I'm a little more sensitive to this um, in the last couple of weeks because I'm making a shift in my own diet and it's very bizarre for me to do it. Um, and so I started to kind of read some of the, the research and discovered that there were a few things that were just published in the last few weeks. Um, the first one that I want to talk about is um, the, the study about processed meats being linked with cardiovascular deaths, but there's a controversial finding because in the European study, um, there was a, a correlation between the high consumption of processed meat um, and an almost a doubling of the risk of all-cause mortality. So, okay, we've said that before, but in the U.S. study, it was also linked to red meat overall, the European study did not say that. So let's let's just start from the beginning. So this is a huge study, um, and the the number of people that that were involved in this is, was a very large number. So it's a good study in terms of it was a, a broad scope. It wasn't something tiny or narrow. Um, and the findings specifically, high consumption of processed meat by middle-aged adults. Now, this is, again, we have to look at this age group. Middle-aged adults was associated with almost a doubling of the risk of all-cause mortality. That was in comparison with individuals who had a low consumption of processed meat. And the, it was over an average of 12 years. So that all-cause mortality doubled over an average of 12 years. The cardiovascular death, that's the heart disease, all that kind of stuff, um, heart attack, um, the, the coronary artery disease, those kinds of things, increased by more than 70% for individuals who ate a large amount of processed meat every day. Um, and, you know, large amount, 160 grams, that's a lot of meat. Um, and a lot of processed meat. We're talking about the greasy, you know, the, the smoked meats, um, the processed meats like bacon, sausage, ham, also the lunch meats though, all of those um, processed meats that no longer really resemble the original product. Um, and the risk of cancer death was also 43% higher among those individuals who consume the most processed meats. Now, again, nobody from this study is saying don't ever eat processed meats. They're not saying don't eat meat. They're saying, eh, watch it. Stay low. Don't eat a lot of processed meats. Now, the, the risk of um, red meat in this study, in the European study, was much lower than that of processed meats. So, yeah, it there was an increase um, that was about 18% higher for all-cause mortality, but it wasn't as high as the processed meats. So that's really what we can take away from the European study. It's not that they're saying, you know, that the U.S. study was wrong. It's not that we can't resolve what's the difference between the U.S. study. All we can say is that 
there is still some risk from eating specifically red meat, but it's not as high as the issue with the processed meats. Now, there might be lots of factors in that. There might be the fact that processed meats do tend to be higher in fat, and we do see some difficulty with high-fat diets in relation to heart disease. Later on in the show, I'll talk about high-fat diets in relation to dementia and Alzheimer's, which is going to really be confusing. But for right now, we're looking at heart disease. So there is more fat. There's also more um, uh, more heme iron, which is that um, the, the iron component of eating red meat is very, very high as compared to other meats. Um, and that also might link meat consumption to the cardiovascular disease risk. But that heme iron is not limited to just the processed meat. So that doesn't really tell us, um, that doesn't really explain things. Now, there's also some speculation that, okay, maybe people who eat um, a great amount of processed meat also have other unhealthy behaviors like smoking or low physical activity and very few fruits and vegetables in their diets, which we know would help them prevent some of those um, consequences. But, you know, we don't know that. Those factors weren't identified in this particular study. So, okay, so given that, let's, let's talk about what comes next then. Do we just stop eating all meats? Do we, um, do we stop eating red meat? Well, I don't know. Um, it's more about decide for yourself. You know, red meat has some other um, negative associations. What does that really mean? Well, um, when people reduce the amount of red meat in their diets, not that they stop eating red meat, but when they reduce the amount of red meat in their diet, they also lower their risk for type 2 diabetes. So this is, again, this is an observational study. And the the difficulty with an observational study is all it tells us is associations. It doesn't tell us cause and effect. And again, we can speculate that that increased risk for diabetes might be because red meat has a higher saturated fat content. So maybe it's not the type of protein or the type of meat, but it's the fat, the type of fat that our bodies don't know really what to do with or don't process well or can't process quickly. And so it adds, one, one, it adds calories, okay? And so what we know is if you're overweight, the more that you weigh, the more likely that your body will develop type 2 diabetes because you're resistant to insulin, your fat cells are um, slowing down the process of of glucose processing, the, the normal sugar that we use for energy. And the more fat you have, the more resistant your cells are to allowing the insulin to do its job. That's what type 2 diabetes is. See, type 1 diabetes is that you don't produce enough insulin. Type 2 diabetics have insulin. They just can't get the insulin to open the door to the cell to use the glucose molecule. So think of the insulin molecule as being kind of the doorman. The insulin is supposed to escort a glucose molecule to a cell, any cell. They all use glucose for for fuel. They're supposed to open the door of the cell wall 
and usher the glucose in where it can be used for fuel. But when someone has type 2 diabetes, the cell wall is locked. It's as if the, the insulin molecule has lost the key to open the door or the lock has been changed. And so the body no longer processes that glucose in an effective way. And then we develop more and more fat. And also the body becomes more inflamed. The body is unable to use the glucose for fuel. And, you know, that, that's a bad thing. Cells need to have fuel in order to function. So if we come back to this whole issue of um, the fat, the type of fat, maybe again, it's not about the type of meat. Maybe it's about the actual uh, fat type. Now, you know, when we're talking about what, what size what, what's a serving? What, how much is a serving of meat? Well, you know, three ounces of beef, lamb, pork, hamburger is about the size of a deck of cards. So that's how much meat is considered to be one serving. An egg is a single ounce. Um, a single serving of processed meat would be three sizes of like deli meat, one hot dog, uh, two sausages, or I'm sorry, one sausage, or two slices of bacon. So those are, you know, those are relatively small, and some people eat a lot more than that. And especially if you go, if you do a lot of fast food, you're eating a lot of processed meat, and that fast food is not in a single portion. It's not a single serving. You get a lot more than that. So there's one of the issues in consuming too much in terms of processed meat. But overall, people who had a consistently low intake of meat, all meat, and who over time, see this was a, this was a, a long-term study. We're talking about, um, there were three studies that, that were pulled together for this particular research. Um, one was the health professionals follow-up study which is an um, all-male study, and there were 26,357 participants in that um, over 20 years. Um, the Nurses' Health Study, which is 48,709 women, um, again, over 20 years. Um, and the Nurses' Health Study 2, which is 74,000 women, um, and that, um, that was uh, 15 years that particular study uh, started later. That's why it was the second one. And so, uh, you know, in those, the, that huge volume of people watching them over time, one of the things that could be assessed was a change in habits, a change in meat intake. And so for those individuals who increase their meat intake by more than a half a serving to, uh, per day over four years, they're in their risk for uh, type 2 diabetes went up 48%. So almost half increased, even if they increased their meat intake by just a little over a half a serving. Some of that you can explain by weight gain, um, but maybe some of it can be explained because that again, that association for processed meat and unprocessed meat, the processed meat had a greater incidence. This study was published in the um, JAMA's uh, Journal of, of Internal Medicine, um, and it just came out June 17th of this year. 
so you know there's some there's some reasons to pay attention to what you're eating going back to red meat and heart disease well you know the those foods that produce um that that are from red meat and the common foods that we look at what i want you to know is there was a study that was just again just recently published and it talked not about the red meat specifically but about an amino acid in the red meat l-carnitine uh, l-carnitine is uh, an amino acid it's you know used by our bodies um, it's found in not only meat but eggs and dairy products um, and also choline, which is another one of those um, kind of essential kinds of things that we have to have in order to build muscle and create the neurotransmitters in our brain, all those things that we have to have. And so there were two studies that were done that linked the microbacteria, the, um, the flora, the bacteria in our gut with the metabolism of dietary choline and um, with the metabolism of L-carnitine. Now, in that study, one of the things they did was they, um, they suppressed the normal bacteria by giving antibiotics for a week. So they suppressed the work of the normal um, flora in the gut and then they introduce the L-carnitine um, and the choline into the system by foods and also the reason how they did this was they put a little radioactive tag on some of the L-carnitine so they could follow it in the body and they followed um, the kind of the plasma levels. The interesting thing was that um, without the bacteria there, the L-carnitine level didn't go up. Um, the and it's not the L-carnitine; it's the byproduct, the metabolite of that, which was found to be an issue. So the metabolite of L-carnitine didn't go up, at least not initially. Um, there, the study linked that they could predict um, cardiovascular death and uh, major adverse cardiac events, myocardial infarction, stroke, death. Um, they could predict that in persons that had that high metabolite concentration from L-carnitine. Well, that's very interesting. Now, people might jump to the conclusion that we should stop eating anything that has L-carnitine in it, and that's not the point. It wasn't a statement about what you should and shouldn't eat. It was simply a statement of how is it used. Now, again, you might jump to the conclusion that, okay, if we just kill off all the bacteria in the gut, then we wouldn't have that issue, right? Well, that's not the ideal. We need that bacteria in the gut. We're simply in this study. All that was done was that we were looking at, the, the physicians and the researchers who did this, were looking at the specific process by which L-carnitine um, is metabolized and how that metabolite then affects 
um, the the cardiovascular incidence. And the thing that was really most important was it didn't matter if someone was diabetic or not, and it didn't matter what their cholesterol level was. So this is an independent factor from the um, from what we've been saying about the fats and the cholesterol and the red meat. So the takeaway from this is not a statement about diet. The takeaway from this is that we're learning the process of how our bodies work. We're about to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll do a little more on this research with diet and health. You're listening to the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Are you ready to make a change in your life? Would you like to discover the hidden obstacles to your success? Mary Beth Lodge is a certified life coach with a proven track record of guiding others to success. Drawing on mind-body techniques and concepts of neuroscience, Mary Beth will design a program specific to your goals, lifestyle, and personality. You'll develop a specific action plan to follow. You'll learn practical and easy strategies to move through your obstacles and reach your goals. You decide the area to focus on. Is it your weight, your health, or your professional goals? Mary Beth Lodge is a life coach, hypnotist, and health consultant. She specializes in working with people who are confused, frustrated, or discouraged by the direction of their life. She works with people who really want to make a difference in this world and are willing to take the actions to achieve their goals. She'll help you get clear on where you want to be and to follow through on the actions that lead to a healthier and more successful life. Visit LastingLifestyleChange.com to request more information or a free consultation. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to What Matters with Mary Beth Lodge. To be a part of our discussion on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to marybethlodge at gmail.com. Now, back to What Matters. Good morning. Thank you for joining me this morning on What Matters. We've been having a discussion about some of the medical research that's come out recently in terms of diet and health. And um, and I was just talking about that study about L-carnitine and the bacteria and the metabolite of L-carnitine. Well, here's the part that I really want you to take away this morning is that there's been an interesting observation out there um, that comes kind of from the animal world, not from the people world. But, you know, for about 50 years, um, we've been in the, in the general industry of livestock um, and in the livestock that has been developed for human food. Uh, we've been feeding low doses of antibiotics. And the overall effect of that is an increase in their body mass. Now, isn't that interesting? We gave antibiotics, low-level antibiotics, to the cows, and the cows got fatter. So, you know, that observation was made, and someone put together another study 
this is, I think, Scott Peterson, PhD, who did that, and he put together a study of um, of a, a mouse, kind of a mouse model. Um, actually, it wasn't Dr. Peterson who did it. He's just simply reporting on it. And they did the same thing with the mice. They fed them low doses of antibiotics from a very young age, and their percentage, their fat percentage went up. Their body fat percentage went up. So their weight, they didn't weigh more specifically, but they did have their lean body mass was less and their fat percentage was higher. Isn't that interesting? So the antibiotics were creating obesity, these low-level antibiotic all of the time. So what's going on there? Well, again, we need that normal flora in our gut. We need that bacteria in our gut. And when we take antibiotics, we kill that off. And so the problem with that is that we're then not digesting food appropriately. We're not allowing the body to get the nutrients it needs. And somehow that food goes to fat. Again, we don't know all the mechanisms. That study on L-carnitine, that was beginning to look at that mechanism. We don't know yet. The important thing is to recognize that we can interrupt the absorption of food and we can cause fat production, and yet we don't even know what we're doing. Now, I said earlier in the show that I would confuse you because there is also a study about... um, cognitive decline, specifically Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, in Alzheimer's, there's a very specific uh, toxic protein that's found in the brain that, that the body is seems to be unable to clear. And here's the interesting finding out of this study. This compared a low-fat diet and a high-fat diet, a high-saturated-fat diet. And actually, the people on the high-saturated-fat diet were better able to clear that toxic protein than people on a uh, low-fat diet with a low glycemic index. We don't know yet what that truly means. It does not give you license to go out and eat fast food from morning till night because, see, there are other factors here in terms of heart disease and cancer. So, again, we're confused We're not getting all of the information yet because we don't know yet. It takes 20 years for research to make it from the research publishing to actual practice in the medical world. 20 years. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're working on is still old. A lot of the diets that are being uh, spoken of are kind of old. These new studies give us some place to continue to look for more research, but they don't yet direct to us what we should and shouldn't be eating. So the bottom line is we have to look at, in general, what does the healthy body use and what does it need? So here's here's the process. There are absolutely three things you can do. What we know is that, in general, 
the Mediterranean diet. That's the diet that uses a lot of omega-3 oils and minimizes the omega-6. So minimizes the saturated fats, uses a lot of fresh fruit, raw olive oil, and the oily fish such as salmon. And that diet, again, you know, moderate dairy products, um, a lot of fruits and vegetables, a lot of fresh, raw fruits and vegetables. That one definitely linked to a reduced um, incidence of cognitive decline. So remember what I said about that, you know, that brain. We're not talking about a low-fat diet here. We're talking about a diet that has the healthier fats, the omega-3s. See, we get plenty of omega-6s. If you eat eggs or meat at all, you're getting plenty of omega-6s. You don't need to supplement that, and you don't need to increase that. But we very rarely get the omega-3s unless we intentionally include the fish and the um, the oils, flaxseed oil, olive oil, uh, evening primrose oil, uh, borage oil. Those are all omega-3s. So unless we include those in a regular basis on our diet, we don't get those. Um, so the Mediterranean diet gives us those, and those are fats that we can use. It's also about the vitamins and minerals in the fresh fruits and vegetables. That's what makes the med diet so very, very healthy. We get lots of good fiber from raw vegetables. We get lots of good nutrients from our, um, from our vegetables and our fruits. The fruits give us some enzymes so that we can continue to digest the food appropriately, although probably not enough as you age. But the med diet itself is associated with a lot of health benefits. So there's one thing that you can do. So um, a high adherence to this diet, so sticking to, for the most part, a Mediterranean diet has benefits in terms of um, cognitive impairment, so there's less cognitive decline. It has benefits in terms of prevention of stroke and cardiovascular disease and the cerebrovascular risk, so things, again, hardening of the arteries kinds of things, you know, that atherosclerosis is diminished, and we know this from the med diet. The med diet also, because of those wonderful fruits and vegetables, has a lot of antioxidants, which prevents cell death. So, of course, your blood vessels are healthier. Your body gets better circulation because your blood vessels are healthier. And so you stay healthier overall. So that's one thing you could choose is to look closely at your diet and do the best that you can do for yourself at this time. Now, again, the med diet's not the only one, and there are other diets that do, do improve health. Um, some of them are low-fat diets. Some of them um, are, you know, a balanced kind of protein vegetable kind of diet, and some of them are vegan or vegetarian. And actually, you know, there are great benefits for people who are vegan, and who do not consume meat. There are great benefits in terms of cardiovascular health. Um, a vegan diet is hard to do, and so it takes quite a bit of commitment at first. It becomes very easy once you've been doing it a while. 
But initially, it takes a lot of thought. If you've been a meat eater and you're switching, um, you have to kind of do it gradually and in steps. You switch to vegetarian, then you switch to vegan. You don't just jump into vegan. It's too hard to figure it out. Um, you have to do it progressively over time, and that's fine. There are wonderful, wonderful benefits, health benefits in terms of cardiovascular health and brain health that come from both the vegetarian and vegan approaches. Now, what else can you do? Well, I talk repeatedly about exercise and movement. Okay, so here's the study I want you to hear, especially if you are a diabetic. If you are a type 2 diabetic, please pay attention to me right now. There is, or if you know someone who is, there is a study that was published just recently that shows that three walks of 15-minute duration, one walk after each meal, so three times a day, 15 minutes after each meal, had a longer-lasting effect on 24-hour glycemic control, that's blood sugar control, than a once-daily 45-minute walk at 10.30 in the morning or a once-daily 45-minute walk at 4.30 in the afternoon um, or compared with no exercise, obviously. So here's the interesting thing that I found, like, really fascinating, was that the morning walk was fine, and it it did help somewhat, but it didn't have the long-lasting 24-hour effect on blood sugar control. The 4.30 walk in the afternoon of 45 minutes in duration had no impact. It was as if the person didn't walk. It had no impact on the blood sugar level. Now, isn't that interesting? So time of day made a difference. But the thing that made the most difference was the three 15-minute walks. So the 45-minute morning walk did reduce 24-hour glucose concentrations, but not as much as the 15-minute walk after each meal. And it seemed that that last 15-minute walk, the one after the evening meal, was the one that had the most impact on the 24-hour control. So that after-dinner exercise was most important of the three. I think that's an incredible finding, not only for, um, for diabetics, but for all of us, because it does speak to the fact that you don't have to do all of your exercise at one time. You see, you can impact your metabolism, and that's really what we're seeing, is there's an impact in the metabolism for glucose control with this three-time-a-day walk. So you don't have to find 45 minutes or an hour to get all of your exercise in. You can fit it in throughout your day. And if you do this after your evening meal, that's okay. That's a good thing, and it's healthy for you. And finally, the last thing you can do, meditation. Yes, meditation. Quiet time. I don't care which one you use. This particular study was um, about mindful meditation, the mindfulness practice, which is a focus on you know sitting still, focusing on your breathing, bringing your mind back if it becomes distracted. That's fine. Wonderful. This particular study showed that after just four training sessions, there were actual changes in the specific brain regions that are related to anxiety and depression. 
Okay, I want you to hear that. Brain changes from four sessions of meditation. The challenge for you is how do you make it long term? And that's true for everything here. I want to thank you for listening this morning. I want to thank you for taking in this information. And now your challenge is take it home, make it work, do something differently because of what you learned today. Go out there today, make it a great day. You truly deserve it. Thanks again for joining us for What Matters. Be sure to tune in again next Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll help you continue to make a difference next week. Are you ready to make a change in your life? Would you like to discover the hidden obstacles to your success? Mary Beth Lodge is a certified life coach with a proven track record of guiding others to success. Drawing on mind-body techniques and concepts of neuroscience, Mary Beth will design a program specific to your goals, lifestyle, and personality. You'll develop a specific action plan to follow. You'll learn practical and easy strategies to move through your obstacles and reach your goals. You decide the area to focus on. Is it your weight, your health, or your professional goals? Mary Beth Lodge is a life coach, hypnotist, and health consultant. She specializes in working with people who are confused, frustrated, or discouraged by the direction of their life. She works with people who really want to make a difference in this world and are willing to take the actions to achieve their goals. She'll help you get clear on where you want to be and to follow through on the actions that lead to a healthier and more successful life. Visit LastingLifestyleChange.com to request more information or a free consultation.